Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church Sermon Archive. We are glad that you have decided to listen. We hope each and every sermon will exalt God, strengthen God's people, and lead the lost to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at our website at www.trinityweatherford.net under the Contact Us tab. And now, here is Pastor Skyler Spradlin opening God's Word. Second Timothy, not in Philippians. Second Timothy, if you do open your Bible to Philippians, as that's what we've been walking through, you can keep going to your right. You'll stumble through a few other letters and first and second Thessalonians, first Timothy, and then second Timothy. It's in the latter half of your New Testament. If you want to start in Revelation or if you open it up and find yourself in Hebrews or or Jude or first and second Peter, first, second, third John. Titus, anything like that, keep going to your left, you'll come into 2 Timothy. I am very thankful to be in the pulpit this morning, uh, having not have been here the last two weeks. Uh, it is a bittersweet to have rest, uh, but to not be here, and so I'm thankful to be back uh, here, and I've, I've been waiting for this moment with great eagerness. Uh, last week sometime, I was in the kitchen doing a little work, <clears throat> believe it or not, and uh, I was playing on my phone an old sermon by an old Welsh preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And, and some of you uh, know that name, some of you don't, that's okay. But uh, he's regarded by many today as one of the greatest preachers in modern church history. Uh, one of those uh, kind of once-in-a-generation type preachers. Uh, he he uh, really has inspired many preachers today. And so I was listening to some of his sermons uh, through Romans, which was really kind of his um, epitome of preaching. And Emberly walks in and she says, Dad, is that you? <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. And I was all of a sudden struck and filled with enormous pride. Because I just knew, my daughter knows it's not the Irish accent or the Welsh accent. She can tell that. She's listening to the content of this sermon and thinks that I think like, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that I'm on the same level with him. And so I said, well, no, honey, I thank you. I'm glad you're understanding, but that's, that's Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's an old Welsh preacher. He's a terrific preacher, but thank you. That's not me. And Jamie yells from the other room, that's not what she's asking. She wants to know if you're playing music on your phone. And I said, oh, well, then yes. Pride comes before the fall, and since that moment, I have been eager to get back in the pulpit uh, because I realize I am no Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, but this is my calling, this is what I want to do, and I'm thankful the Lord has us together here doing this. Second Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Now, um, <clears throat> it's very rare, you guys know, that I, I take a break from where we're actually at. We've been going through the book of Philippians since January, the first Sunday of January. And this is really the first break that we've had from Philippians. Uh, the last two weeks, both Doug and Brian have filled in and done terrific jobs. And, and yet, I still want to keep the pause going on Philippians. Um, maybe for the next three or so weeks before we pick it back up in 
in November sometime. Um, and I don't really enjoy that. If it's my preference, I don't want to do that. But I have good reason, good reasoning, I think. The reasoning is that next Sunday is Reformation Sunday. Um, it's the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It's the anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st in the year 1517. Now, the Protestant Reformation, if you don't know, did not happen with a loud bang. It didn't begin with a loud shout. It didn't even happen over a short period of time. It happened over several decades, and it began in, in large part with a silent question. And then it exploded from that point. But generally, we mark the anniversary as the day when Martin Luther nailed these statements, these 95 statements, to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, a little bit about Martin Luther, and I'll be brief. He was an Augustinian friar in an Augustinian monastery. He's not a monk, uh, he's a friar. And he was a, a man that it's not, not too far-fetched to say was a tortured individual. He struggled significantly on the inside with this burning question, how can a holy God forgive sinners? And that question plagued him. He tried to do all sorts of works. Tried to change his behavior. Tried to do certain rituals and traditions. Nothing would assuage the torment in his soul regarding a holy God forgiving the sin of sinners and having a relationship with them. So through a providential set of circumstances that I won't go into, Martin Luther finally comes to faith a little before 1517 by both reading and teaching through the Psalms and then the letter to the Romans that we read out of this morning. And over the course of time, he began to realize there's a discrepancy in what I believe and what is being taught to me and in what I actually see in the Bible. And so he writes these 95 statements. And these 95 statements, they center primarily upon the subject of repentance and the, the general Christian faith as a whole and how to define it. But Luther wasn't trying to divide the church when he wrote these statements. His question was to help the church. So he wrote his statements and he, he didn't defiantly nail them to the church door. He nailed them to the public bulletin board. Every announcement in the whole village, the whole city, the whole community would have been placed in the exact same spot. And Luther, far from being defiant, wrote his 95 statements in Latin, a language that only a select few educated, learned, scholared individuals would know. Luther's desire was to ask questions about the teaching of the church in a scholarly setting to be debated. He didn't desire to create a public outcry. Well, against his wishes, somebody came along in the middle of the night and took down Luther's statements, translated them hurriedly into the common German language, carried them off to the printing press in the city, and passed them out to the general public. And then, the spark of the Reformation began. And Luther, who wanted to ask his questions and debate his beliefs in private, now had to own his grievances in public. 
One individual described him as a man who was simply walking up the steps in the church tower, who tripped, reached out and grabbed a rope to keep from falling and rang the bell of the Reformation. It was by his account an accident. Fast forward to today, and us, particularly our Baptist heritage, eagerly embrace the teachings of the Protestant Reformation and herald it as a reclamation of the gospel. As God's faithfulness to preserve the truth of the saving message of Christ. Now, over time, we have come to identify the certain themes and principles of the Reformation. Now, there's five primary themes. Many of you know what they are. They're called the five solas. Sola is a Latin term meaning singular or alone or only or solo. They're the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Now, truth be told, you won't find any of them written verbatim in any Reformation writings. But you will find their themes and their principles articulated over and over and over and over again. And so for our understanding, we can condense and concisely articulate the general teachings of the Protestant Reformation in these five solas, these five alone statements. Lord willing, I want to spend the next two Sundays, maybe the next three, looking at these five solas to remember God's faithfulness in preserving His church, preserving His Word, preserving the Gospel, so that you and I sit here today hearing the Word of God preached in English, reading the Word of God in our own native language, knowing the Gospel in our own language, because of the efforts taken and accomplished in the Protestant Reformation. So we want to celebrate God's faithfulness, and that's what I intend for us to do. And today, I'd like to look at at least, hopefully, two of them. Two of the, the five solas of the Reformation, and I would call these the front and back door of the Reformation. I think they're the two pillars of truth. I think they're the pillars of Christianity, the immovable guards, if you will, of sound Christian belief. In other words, you won't be faithful to the God of the Bible or the teaching of the Bible if you don't have these two understandings in their proper place. One in the front door to guard the entrance of all who would profess Christianity, and one at the back door to keep anybody from wandering off the main purpose of the Christian faith. So who stands at the front door? What teaching of the Reformation guards Christianity more than anything else? It is, in Latin, sola scriptura, which in English means Scripture alone. I hope you've asked by this point in time in your life, why does Trinity walk verse by verse, sometimes word by word, chapter by chapter, book by book, through the Bible over long periods of time? Do you know the reasoning behind that? Why do we take a four chapter book like Philippians and spend a year walking through every word, contemplating every teaching, every thought? Why is the regular diet of our church 
verse-by-verse exposition over something else. Moral teaching, good lessons, primarily topical teaching. And the reason is, I'll just answer in case you haven't ever contemplated that question. Because we believe the Bible to be the Word of God. And as the Word of God, it is our goal and our desire to know it in and out. To know it thoroughly. To know it completely. To know it to the best of our abilities. And to live by it. See, I believe, we believe, that nothing will serve your soul better than an accurate, regular, consistent diet of God's Word. My wisdom will fail you. My advice and my opinions will fail you. They're weak. They'll fall short every single time. But if we at least read the Word of God with each other, we find God addressing every need that we have. And so we eagerly, wholeheartedly embrace the Scriptures as God's Word, which means they are our sole and primary authority for all of life and all of faith. Now, just a a quick disclaimer here. I can't unpack everything about this teaching, so bear with some simplicity here this morning. But just because we call the Bible our sole authority doesn't mean that nothing else has authority in our lives. One could make the argument that there are other things that have authority in our our lives, in the life of our church. Creeds, statement of faith, confessions. Even the church itself bears some unique authority over our individual lives. I believe the Bible teaches that. But when we say that the Bible is our sole and primary authority, we mean that it is the final determiner of all things pertaining to life and faith. And if anything else has any authority in our lives, it's purely because it clearly articulates the teaching of the Scriptures. Now, all of this, I think, can be found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Would you please look at that verse with me? It is the definitive, most important verse. If there's a single verse, it's the single most important verse in all of the Bible pertaining to the Bible itself. I would beg you to memorize it. At least know its reference. Think of the world's most famous verse, John 3.16. Replace John with 2 Timothy and you'll be good. Think 2 Timothy 3.16 is about the Bible and you'll be well on your way. I want you to know that. Because this verse, by and large, explains why we're so committed here to the Bible and why we ought to be so committed to the Bible. Paul's at the end of his life writing to Timothy, his what he calls child in the faith, his son in the faith. He's coming down to this very last letter that he writes in the New Testament, and he's at the end of this last letter, towards the end, the second half. He's been writing about Timothy's life, Timothy's past, wanting Timothy to be on guard against false teaching in the world. And he comes down to end chapter 3 this way in verse 16. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Sometimes I can be very sentimental. 
I think about the apostle at the end of his life. There's a few final things I can write to Timothy that he'll have that perhaps he'll keep his whole life. One of them is to tell him about the Word of God. Timothy was already pastoring at this time. Timothy was uh, already leading churches at this time. Timothy was even appointing elders at this time. Timothy had been with Paul for several years doing missionary work, church planning work, receiving Paul's letters, sending letters back to Paul, being with Paul in prison. It wasn't as if Timothy was this immature young guy who doesn't know the doctrines of Christianity. He had sat under Paul's teaching personally for so long and had, we can safely assume, unique investment from the Apostle. That doesn't stop Paul, though, at the end of his life reminding him of the very core basic doctrines of Christianity. Specifically that, these Scriptures that you profess and these Scriptures that you hold, they are God's. And so if God speaks, He does so through His Word. And if His Word speaks, He speaks. We are not past the teaching or the refreshing reminder of the doctrine of Scriptures. Brother or sister, you may have been a Christian for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And your soul can be just as blessed by a reminder of the teaching of the Bible on the Bible as ever before. Don't check out just because this is familiar. Let your faith be bolstered in such reminders. Now this verse in 3, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, it's comprehensive. It begins out comprehensive. <clears throat> All Scripture is the comprehensive part of it. Now Paul most certainly would have had in mind the Old Testament. We can make an argument from other passages that the New Testament is included here. I think there's a very interesting text in 2 Peter. Let me get there. 2 Peter chapter 3. Also in verse 16, verse 15 and 16, Peter's writing about Paul here. He says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Verse 16, As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction then notice this, as they do the other Scriptures. There's an understanding to some degree or another, a linkability there in Peter's mind between the Old Testament Scriptures, what were clearly known as the Scriptures, and even what Paul wrote to being as Scripture. Whether or not these writers knew that what they were writing was inspired text is one thing, but to some degree they had an understanding that perhaps the writing of others, Paul specifically was Scripture. So when we come down to verse 16 in, in 2 Timothy 3 and we read all Scripture, we're safe to conclude both the Old Testament and the New Testament is the Bible. It is the Word of God. That means every word in its entirety given to us from the Creator. God Himself and all of His magnificence and all of His splendor gives us His Word 
that we might know Him. It is the second greatest gift apart from His Son that we have from God. As I will make the argument later, without the Bible, we do not know God, period. But we have the Bible. We have it in its entirety. We have all the scriptures given to us by God himself. Just a quick point of application here. We must treat both testaments as inspired. And so we strive and have made changes to our worship service, reading both from the Old Testament and the New Testament as we did today because we want to cultivate this understanding that anywhere we look within these pages, we find the Scriptures, sacred writings from God Himself. That, that leads to the next thing we can understand from verse 16. The origin of these Scriptures, they are breathed out by God. Makes me think of Genesis 1 and 2 when God breathes life into Adam. It's this personal picture. It's this picture that communicates that God's Word comes from within Himself. You think about even Adam re receiving the breath of life when he's created, how up close and personal that picture is. It, it actually says God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And now we read in the New Testament, God has also breathed out his word. The origins of these Bibles. These words, these Bibles that we hold, they're not from people primarily. They're from God Himself. Now this leads us to consider or contemplate just briefly the, the notion of or doctrine of inspiration. So I, I want you to just flip over very quickly to Second Peter chapter 1. It's very important for you to see this yourself. Chapter 1 verse 16. What's up with all these 16 verses? If you're a conspiracy uh, theorist, you might do some research here. And come up with something. I'll probably ignore it, but you could. Second Peter chapter one verse sixteen. I just want to run through this text, but I want you to see some things. Peter writes. He says, "We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty." For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and when the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Your Bible might say we have something more certain or more sure, the prophetic word. Here's Peter writing and he's testifying to personal experience. And he says, but beyond my personal experience about Christ, we have the prophetic word of Christ. See, eyewitness testimony may, may fault, it may fail, may flounder, but not the prophetic word. So he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do, do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, 
knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Here's the key verse, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That carried phrase kind of uh, pictures in our minds or, or, or implies a, a made-up boat, maybe out of paper or sticks or cardboard, being carried by a river. It exists on its own and it floats on the river, but the river takes it where it wants and how it wants. So too were the individuals who wrote the Bible. They write in their own language. They write from their own mind. They write out of their own experience. But they were very much carried along by God Himself. And they write inspired Scripture. I agree with those who say we have no inspired writers. We only have inspired texts. Not everything these individuals wrote was Scripture or the Bible. We're not missing pieces. But at certain times, they wrote certain things that God inspired, and it is Scripture. It comes from God Himself. And so, Paul can write in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It comes from God. The last portion of this verse tells us that it's an active word. It's accomplishing something within us. Primarily, it's conforming us to God Himself. It shapes us. It deals with us. Hebrews 4.12 says it divides us, pierces to our hearts. Isaiah 55 says it goes forth and accomplishes everything for which God sent it. It's a living and active word. I want to give you from this point on, four lessons I think we should learn out of verse 16 in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Four quick assessment lessons. The first one is authority as they pertain to the Bible. The Bible has unique authority. And it has authority because it comes from God who has authority. Which means the Bible doesn't just exist to inform us and relay information to us. The Bible exists to govern us. And even more so, the Bible dictates to us. It has this unique, God-origined authority. It gives us a right view of the world. Gives us a right understanding of self. It gives us a right understanding of God. A right understanding of being with God or relating to God. It is the sole, as I said before, sole, primary, absolute authority. Bearing absolute truth. And church, today is a day that we must, with great diligence, recommit ourselves to that renewed truth. And hold on to it with all fervency. And here's the reason why. We now live in a world that seeks answers to life in so many ways other than the Bible. And even more than that, we not only live in a world that's looking for answers in everything but the Bible, we live in a world that actively says we shouldn't find answers in the Bible. 
Romans chapter 1, the very last verse, says they not only know what's evil and, and wrong, but they also, also help those people practice such things. That's a description of the fallen world. They not only, not only know what's wicked and evil, but they, they cheer on those who are doing wickedness and evil. They, they help them practice wickedness. The world we live in not only rejects the Bible, it's actively propagating an, a message of opposition to the Bible. And instead of turning to the Scriptures, the world now embraces and pushes a message of individualism. Self-autonomy. The primary heartbeat of our context is to find life's answers and the solutions to life's problems within yourself. And so when you do that, everything else can be rejected. There is no more absolute truth. There is no more absolute right or wrong. You get to define right and wrong. You get to define morality. And you get to define other things like gender and sexuality and meaning and purpose and whatever else you have for your own life. Such things clearly come from a rejection of the Bible's authority over us. They reject... Not only the Bible's right to speak into our lives, but the Bible's right to define our lives. See, I believe our world and our country is in deep hurt primarily, not because of political polarization, that's a symptom. I think the issue is that the world's following its sinful impulses instead of the sound teaching and authority of the Scriptures. That's the world we live in. And in such a context, God's people must, with great diligence, hold tightly to the Bible. Hold it as our only hope for sound and true understanding. And sound and true living. As the only answer to to help you, the only answer to life's troubles, the only way to make you aware of how to be right with God. We must also be aware that if we cling to the Bible in such fashion as we ought to, I mean, really, don't we believe this has the only true teaching and answers to life? But be warned, if we do hold on to it with such commitment, it will not be popular. And it may even cost us. And maybe not our lives yet. But it will cost us things like influence, opportunity, access. It may lead to the ill treatment of our children or our grandchildren or our families. may cost us fair treatment in the legal system. It may cost us personal privacy. It may even hinder our church from being liked in the community. But you know what? Better to be living and walking and knowing the truth than living in the lie 
The cost may be high, church. But the reward is so worth it. Because not only are our minds and our eyes open, not only is the veil lifted off of our hearts and the scales removed from our eyes to know ourselves, but we, as I said before, get to know God. We get to walk with Him and relate to Him and understand Him. This infinite being, this powerful Creator, this glorious, divine Lord and King has revealed Himself in written form on the pages of the Bible that you and I might at any time of our choosing, in any place of our choosing, at any whim, pick up these pages and read them and know Him. The reward outweighs the cost. So we affirm, we confess, we embrace, and yes, we live by this authoritative Word of God. The second lesson that I think we can deduce out of 2 Timothy 3.16 is the sufficiency of the Bible. Closely related to its authority, but perhaps giving it a little bit of a different emphasis. The sufficiency of the Scriptures means that they are not lacking in accomplishing their purpose or objective. In other words, there's no deficiency in the Scriptures. No weakness. We don't have to worry if it will endure. We don't have to worry if it's still true or if it's a changing truth. We don't have to worry if it will fail us or not. It's sufficient. Everything else in life is shifting. Everything else in life comes and goes. The Bible is a solid foundation. Sufficient for every age and every person and every generation to know life and faith. This Word of God is sufficient because God is sufficient. And it will endure because God will endure. And it will remain true because it comes from God. It can be no other thing than true. Just like with its authority, however, we live in a time and a world that seeks to undermine its sufficiency. Not so much does this undermining or usurping come from the world around us as it does from our spiritual adversary. His tactic in the garden was this very issue, to undermine the sufficiency of God's Word. What did He say to Adam and Eve in the garden? He said, did God really say? Dot, dot, dot. Because the tactic of the enemy is to give you, even, even if it's the slightest, to give you any form of doubt concerning God's Word, concerning its truthfulness, concerning that it's good enough for life, that it's good enough for your life, etc., etc. We have an active enemy that would love nothing more than for you to doubt even a fraction of the truthfulness of the Bible. Because a fraction will always inevitably lead to bigger chunks. You see, it's my estimation, and you've heard me say this before, but I believe the root sin of all sin, including the sin in the garden, isn't so much pride as it is the sin of unbelief. To doubt that what God said was actually right. 
that what God said would actually come about. That if I actually eat that fruit, I will die. To doubt God's promise, to doubt God's warning, to doubt God's command, to doubt that His Word is actually in any way, shape, or form sufficient. I think that's the core issue behind every sin, this issue of belief in the truthfulness of God's Word. I think we gossip because we don't really believe God's Word when it says that gossip is bad. It's not that bad. It's a victimless crime. It's not that harmful. We engage in immorality because we don't believe God's warnings about immorality. It's really not that bad. It's also victimless, right? We embrace things and permit things like divorce because surely God's Word isn't sufficient for this complex marriage. It doesn't understand my situation. We tell lies because we don't believe God's Word when it says it's actually a really big deal. We treat each other harshly because we don't really believe God's Word when it says that kindness and gentleness are the hallmarks of godliness. Those are all ideal things. They don't... The Bible doesn't know what it's like to live in this world, to be in my skin, to live in my context, to be married to my spouse, to have my kids, to have my job, to live in my home. It's good for you and it's good for all those other things and it's good for certain areas of life, but it's not sufficient for all these other things. I maintain every sin as ultimately a rejection of the sufficiency of God's Word. It's truthfulness. It's goodness. Church, this is the world that you and I occupy. This is the world our kids are growing up in. This is the world our friends and our co-workers and our family is living in. It is our mandate to embrace the Word of God as sufficient. Not just to do so in speech. To actually live by it. Do you know there is no greater testimony to your conviction in the sufficiency of God's Word than for you to orient your entire life around it. You display the power of the Gospel when you live by the teaching of Scripture. You set yourself up Apart, you, you reveal the marks of the Spirit upon your heart. When you seek, even imperfectly as we all do, but when we seek to live by the teachings of God's Word, when we confess them, when we strive for them, when we run to them, when we live in them, we confess that the Gospel has changed my heart. God has grabbed a hold of me. I am a different person, not by my effort or desire or, or motivation or whatever else but because God has caused me to be born again. We must be a people that stand in the gap with the Apostle Peter. In John chapter 6, he says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter makes a wonderful confession there, one beyond his own intellectual abilities. But he looks at Jesus, he says, we have nowhere else to go. You alone have the words of life. But this wasn't just a verbal confession for Peter and the other disciples. You know what is also just as powerful? They actually stay. In this John 6 context, Jesus has just told everybody the, the world's best method of church growth, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and everybody runs away from Him. And they say in the text, that's too hard. That's a hard saying. Who can understand this? And Jesus looks at the twelve and says, are you going to go too? And this, this is when Peter responds, you, you have the words of life. I have nowhere else to go. And then they stay. When everybody else leaves, they stay. See, it's not just our confession in the sufficiency of God's Word, though that's important. It's also in actually living out our convictions as best as we can with our fallen flesh. Now, before you misunderstand me, a point of clarification before I move on. In no way, shape, or form am I calling you to rally up and defend the cause of God in our fallen world. I have no desire for you to listen to what I'm saying right now in this moment and equate that with going out into the world with a sword and your armor on and going after every false teaching and every different viewpoint from the sufficiency of God's Word. That's not my desire at all. I think there are many well-meaning Christians who are doing that. And I think they're getting caught up in the same worldly and ungodly tactics as the world itself uses. But by no means is that my desire for you from this point here this morning. Instead, my desire is for you to not look out there at those who don't believe this, but to look at yourself and to believe it. I desire a personal response from you this morning. I desire you to personally examine and see where you doubt the sufficiency of God. I desire you to personally embrace the Scriptures as God's divine Word given to you as a gracious gift of love. I desire you to personally examine your life and see and determine where we must reorient ourselves so that we are more faithful to the Scriptures. In other words, I don't want you to hear me talk about the sufficiency of the Bible and the world we live in and the need for us to embrace it and then equate that with we have to go out and change the world. I'd rather you listen to this and say, I must cling even tighter. And be personally moved and personally changed. Personally convicted. Thirdly, this morning, I want us to consider the purpose of the Bible. I think we understand that from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We can infer a purpose laid out there. There's an explicit purpose. I'm, I need to move very quickly here. There's an explicit pur purpose mentioned in the verse. There's also a I'm going to argue another purpose implied by the verse. So I think the, the Bible, the Bible has a bunch of sub points 
and then one overarching purpose. One, one or a bunch of sub-purposes, one overarching purpose that defines all these other sub-purposes. Now, just for clarity's sake, the Bible doesn't speak into every area of life. We can be honest about that. It's not telling us about the effects of jet fuel upon the climate. It's not concerning itself with such things. But it does have a very distinct, specific purpose in what it's seeking to accomplish and in the areas that it speaks to. And so, back to verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul mentions four here. He says, This Scripture, breathed out by God, is profitable. It yields rewards. It yields great dividends. It, it serves a functional, objective purpose. Number one is it's profitable for teaching. Education, enlightenment, understanding, information. But, we know God. And we know that God isn't just thinking about our brains. God wants you to know way more than just in your brain. He wants you to know in your heart, doesn't He? So when the Bible says, or Paul writes, he says it's profitable for teaching, he's not just talking about information download. He's not just talking about increasing intellectual capability. There are many, many well-versed people out there who know lots of Bible knowledge, lots of Bible facts, lots of Bible information, and have no relationship with Christ whatsoever. They might know lots of information about the Bible, recount any Bible story they want, and their walk with Christ is that of an infant. God's not just concerned when He says teaching, that this book is profitable for teaching, not just concerned with information download, though that is very important. He's concerned with teaching of the heart. Flip over very quickly to Hebrews chapter 4, please. Another foundational text of the Bible pertaining to the subject of the Bible. Many of you know this verse. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It would be good for us to lay our eyes upon it. The writer of Hebrews in verse 12 of chapter 4 writes and says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and then get this, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's interesting there. When the writer describes the Word of God and its function and its purpose and its reasoning, he says it's there to pierce. It's there to cut like a sword. But what's it after? Our hearts. And if it pierces through our minds as it should, it's to get to, ultimately, our hearts. The Bible is to teach you at the very core of who you are so that you're not just convicted and you're not just believing because of logic and evidence and reasoning, though that's also divinely important, but you're also believing because you know deep in your heart this is true. I haven't just encountered facts about God. I've encountered God Himself in His Word. So this book is profitable for teaching. Teaching both of the mind and of the heart. He says, secondly, it's profitable for reproof. It's the same word for rebuke. 
And that's no surprise to us, right? When the Holy Scriptures encounter unholy sinful people, rebuke has to happen. Reproof has to happen. The Scriptures can sometimes be haunting as they shine the light of truth upon the darkness of our hearts, the dark corners of our minds, of our lives, and expose things. But notice the kindness of God embedded in this verse. He doesn't just rebuke or reprove. He corrects. As any good loving father would do, Scripture is profitable for correction. I say that's His kindness because in rebuking, He doesn't just leave us in, in squalor. He doesn't just leave us down in the dumps. He doesn't just leave us defeated. He lays out the path to righteousness for us. He paves the path of rightness for us. He not only says, hey, that's wrong. He says, that's, this is what's right. And let me show you how to get there. Let me help you get there. Let me correct. It's a loving God who exposes danger in our lives and then provides the way of escape. And that's what He does with His Word. He teaches, He reproves, and He also graciously corrects. All for this final point in verse 16, for training in righteousness. You see, God doesn't just correct us so that... that he may be right in the argument that he may win the day. He corrects us so that we, we would be made like him. Now, why does God want us to be like him? It's not so we can flaunt it. It's not so we can walk around as more holy than the next person. God wants you to be righteous. Because in righteousness, we have a much closer relationship with him than we would otherwise. He trains us in righteousness. That training is a, is a kind of an extended word. It, it's a process. It's, it takes time. It takes effort. It doesn't happen in an instant. But this Word of God will constantly, consistently train us in righteousness. And notice how these things build on each other. It, it teaches, then in its teaching it reproves, but it doesn't just reprove, it also corrects in its reproof and incorrect in it correcting. It is training us in righteousness. These four things are built upon each other. They also inform us of one another. But these, I would say, are sub-purposes of the Bible. And they only occur under the overarching purpose of the Bible, which I would say is to reveal to us God. We studied last Wednesday night, Psalm 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. I think there's a reality in the Bible that God is not a discoverable sort of God. It's not as if we would have just been wandering around in the darkness and finally stumble upon Him one day. In fact, I think that even if we tried without the Bible, with all of our might, and with all of our good intention, with all of our effort, we would still 
If God didn't want to be known, not ever find Him. He's unsearchable. Far beyond us. That's why at Christmas, I like all the hymns that talk about Christ condescending. Coming down to us. Because if God did not wish to be known by creatures, He would never be known. The only way for God to be known is through His Word. Specific, special revelation. The only way for God to ever be known is if He takes the first step. And He has. He's revealed Himself to us that we may know Him. And so in revealing Himself to us, He accomplishes all these other sub-purposes. Teaching, reproving, correction, and training us in righteousness as we're held up to the light of God Himself. All the wickedness begins to burn away until we look just like Him. We're placed in the refining light of His glory. The blazing heat of His splendor. This old sinful flesh melts off until we are a refining, beautiful trophy in His hand. That only comes, that only happens if He reveals Himself. Let me, let me just finish with this. In revealing Himself, He also reveals the Gospel. Because God is Savior. You know, we only know God in certain specific ways. Ways that He would delight, us, delight in us knowing Him. Things like He's the Creator, He's the Judge, He's... God Himself, He's the Savior. See, when God reveals Himself, He reveals His saving desire, His saving nature, His saving pleasure. When we come to the Bible, we find God revealed and we find the Gospel revealed. We find the Gospel that says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And only justified through faith in Christ. As a gift of grace. We find a God full of mercy. As the Bible describes Him rich in mercy. We find a God that the Bible describes who lavishes and is generous in grace. We find a, a God that the Bible says is patient and long-suffering. We find a God that the Bible says possesses steadfast love. We find a God that the Bible says cannot dwell with wickedness. We find a Bible that tells us of, or find a God that the Bible tells us emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being found in human form. And he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We find a God that the Bible tells us, resurrected from the dead so that being lift up He might forgive our transgressions and being resurrected we might be justified. See, we find a God who loves sinners and has laid out the path to be with them. Initiating it Himself, accomplishing it Himself, finalizing it Himself, and calling us 
to it Himself. We find a God who longs to save. A God who says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The final point I was going to make this morning is the worth of the Bible. If it reveals to us God, and if it reveals to us the Gospel, and if it comes from God Himself, it is an infinitely worthy, valuable treasure to be cherished. We must be growing in our commitment to the Scriptures. Devoted in our commitment to the Scriptures. Discontented with our occasional reading and occasional use of the Scriptures. You have a treasure in your hands this morning. A treasure to be cherished. Its worth is as infinite as God Himself. For in it you know yourself to be a sinner, God to be a Savior, and the way to be right with Him through Christ. What more could we ask from a good God? Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for giving us this Word of Yours. It can be hard to understand because our minds are finite and corrupted. But You have given it to us and You have written it down for ages. You have preserved it also that we may know You, be saved by You, live for You, let it not be lost on us, the gracious act that You have performed in making Yourself known. May Your people be built up in commitment to Your Word. May the lost repent and believe and be safe today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.